Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. We absolutely need water in order to not only survive, but to thrive. Hydration is really important, even just within the context or the conversation of detoxification of chemicals, because that's our sort of exit pathway out of the bodies through the kidneys, which filters water and we pee out those toxins. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. This episode is sponsored by Full Circle Prenatal. Full Circle is the only prenatal on the market with the most effective research based doses of everything you need before, during, and after pregnancy. Use the code less stressed to get a discount at fullcircleprenatal.com. All right. So today on the less stressed life, we have Laura Adler. She is the person, she's the environmental toxins nerd, which is exactly what her Instagram handle is. She's an environmental toxins expert and educator and certified holistic health coach who teaches other health coaches, nutritionists, and holistic health practitioners how to eliminate the number one thing holding their clients back from results they're seeking, that unaddressed link between chemicals and chronic health problems. She trains practitioners to become experts in everyday toxin exposure so they can improve client outcomes without spending hundreds of hours researching on their own. She is really a wizard. We've had her here for, we're going into three episodes here. We've talked about air quality, which is so much more timely in 2020. It feels like people were really feeling it. And now we're going to talk about what it's like all the silent things that we don't think about, but we inhale so much air a day. We're made of water, right? So we're going to talk about air and water because it's a complex topic. And there is no better place to talk about a complex topic than a podcast. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. You bet. So let's just get into the basics, Water 101, right? It's like we think about it as this benign beverage that we just consume. But now that I live in a place where I live on an aquifer and we have a well and the water is amazing, it is hard to travel and drink other water. It is disgusting. And we'll get into this later. I have like a history of chlorine stuff. So I feel very interested in this topic. So let's talk about Water 101, like benefits of water, what's in water that we're not seeing, and then what are some of the issues? Right. Sure. I mean, water is such a big topic and it's complicated. And I think people, unfortunately, and I'm certainly fall into this category sometimes, like we want a quick fix. We want a simple answer. We want a, yes, this is good. No, this is bad. Yes, this is your solution. And water is just doesn't work that way. It's pretty complicated. 
you know, 60, 70, depending on what the organ tissue is, percentage of the human body is water. Water is necessary for survival. We can only go a couple of days without water before we start experiencing organ shutdown. So like we absolutely need water in order to not only survive, but to thrive. Hydration is really important, even just within the context or the conversation of detoxification of chemicals, because that's part of exit pathway out of the bodies through the kidneys, which filters water and we need to pee out those toxins. So we absolutely need to be drinking water. Where it starts to get complicated is when we start looking at the quality of our drinking water and what comes out of the tap or even what's in bottled water, which is a whole other discussion, which hopefully we'll be able to get into some of that today. You know, I think that people that are living in developed countries live under this assumption that because they don't have high prevalence of communicable diseases that are transmitted through water, so things like cholera and typhoid and dysentery and all of those, you know, diseases of yesteryear, that we have clean water, that because we don't have bacterial contamination that makes people sick who have clean water, whereas people in developed countries do still deal with that type of contamination. Um, and so we think, oh, their water is bad because they have bacteria in their water that makes people sick, that causes diarrhea, that can ultimately lead to severe dehydration and death. So there's that end of the spectrum. When we look at developed countries, because we don't have those problems, we just kind of operate under the assumption that our water is good and that our water is clean. And you know, that's not true. Unfortunately, we have conquered for the most part, the problem of bacterial contamination, because we use disinfection chemicals like chlorine or chloramine in our water for the sole purpose of killing those pathogens, that bad bacteria that can make people sick. And it's hailed as one of the greatest public health successes of our lifetimes and beyond is water uh, chlorination and disinfection, because it wiped out all of those communicable diseases that were affecting millions of people. So it's a win, but oftentimes these wins come at a cost. And we can talk about the downsides of chlorination in a little bit. But I want to talk about, or at least frame for people that are listening, the scale of the contamination problem. So we have in the United States, the Safe Drinking Water Act, I think this was passed in the 1970s, 1976, 1977, somewhere around there that is overseen by the Environmental Protection Agency. And what the Safe Drinking Water Act does is it regulates the levels of certain contaminants and heavy metals like lead, certain types of pesticides, certain types of chemicals in the drinking water that are known to be harmful to human health. And people think, oh, well, our water's regulated. It's good. It's quote unquote clean. Now, first of all, there are only about 90 chemicals federally regulated. So there's only 90 chemicals that the federal government is like, okay, we have standards for what is the maximum amount of these contaminants that are permitted in our drinking water. So there's not that many regulated, about 90. There are hundreds of chemicals in the drinking water, primarily in low levels. And we can talk about why that's a problem too, why that still matters. So there's more chemicals that are unregulated in our drinking water than there are that are regulated. and just because a chemical is regulated doesn't mean that it's not going to show up in your water. Over 7 million Americans are drinking water on regular. That's violated the Safe Water Drinking Act uh, maximum contaminant levels of certain types of contaminants. So people are drinking water that doesn't actually pass safety standards, or at least the Safe Water Drinking Act. And so 
what people are dealing with is this low level. And in some cases, if we're looking at like lead contamination, Flint, Michigan, other cities around the country that have high levels of certain types of contaminants, people are dealing with either low level or high levels of contaminants in their water that aren't being regulated. Our water municipalities, meaning the water treatment plants that service our homes and buildings, many of these are outdated and failing, like the the actual infrastructure of our water treatment and water distribution systems in the United States are failing. They're old. They don't work well. There are some of them date back to the Civil War, like mind-blowing, right? Like old cast iron pipes dating back to the Civil War. And so we have this antiquated system that doesn't have the capacity to adequately filter out or remove these hundreds of contaminants that are present. And so what that means is when we go to our kitchen sink or we get in the shower and we turn on the faucet, like we are being exposed to these chemicals that are being found in our water. And for everybody, I think it's a concern. And for some people, it's absolutely a concern. So that's sort of like a broad brush of the scale of the problem. There's millions of people drinking water that violate only the ones that the chemicals that are regulated. And there's millions of more people that are drinking water that has high levels of chemicals that technically, legally are permitted to be there because they're not federally regulated. So under the Safe Drinking Water Act, how often do you have to have, let's say, municipality or city water supplies checked for contaminants? Is there some regulation around that? Yes, and. So it depends on the contaminant. I think it's the lead and copper rule states that cities only have to test for lead once every four years. Mm. Well, that's not. And then they'll just keep reprinting that same data that might be three, four years old or longer because maybe they're just not even keeping up with the lead and copper rule. Lots of places violate that rule because they're understaffed. They don't have time. They're sloppy, whatever. And so, you know, no, they're not testing the water every year for these 90 plus contaminants. Some of them they haven't tested in a couple of years. The other thing, and I don't remember what the specifics are on this, but some chemicals require more frequent testing, you know, like monitoring for chloroform or E. coli or that kind of bacteria. Those tests are typically measured more frequently, but you don't know and they don't have to tell you. What they do have to do, what is federally required in the United States, is that your water municipality produces a water quality report annually. These typically release in like June, July, August, sometime that part of the year that tells you, hey, here's what our water report quality is for out the area that we serve. And usually those water quality reports, depending on the relative affluence of the community in which you live, will have more or less information about the water system that you're a part of. And so what I mean by information about your water system is where does your water come from? Is it groundwater? Is it surface water? Is it from a reservoir? Where is it pumped from? How is it treated? Where is it treated? And then here's what we found in our water. And then here's any warnings that we need to communicate to the public. Now, if you live in a community, if somebody's living in a community that's not very affluent, then you're maybe just going to get like a white piece of paper that's got some tables and charts and they're going to go, here's what we're federally required to tell you. We're just going to tell you this. We don't have the funds or the resources to produce a six page color graphic pamphlet that explains 
in great detail everything that's happening. So I've seen a lot of variation in the depth of information that's provided looking at different water quality reports from around the country. Some are amazing and give you a lot of information and others just give you the bare bones. Interesting. You know, you said something earlier, so I'll just reiterate it because it came up and I told you off air, I've been doing some mineral study and I do want to talk about mineral content and water as well, but you were mentioning really old infrastructure and what does water travel through? It travels through either our current fancy or like up-to-date water transport is PEX pipe, you know, plastic PEX pipe. And then old days, it was copper pipes, right? So sometimes you can be picking yeah, up copper from copper pipes. And that's in our homes, right? Yes. That's not in the right. city underneath the streets and the mm-hmm. pipes that bringing water to your house, mm-hmm. right? So it's that infrastructure. Certainly we have housing stock in the United States that has, like you said, copper piping, old piping. People certainly can have fixtures in their kitchen or soldering in the pipes leading up to their house or into their house that contain lead if those houses are old. So that's certainly an issue, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, so that's part of it. But yes, I'm concerned about that. Whatever pipes people have in their homes. I think the ability for pipes, whether it's copper pipes or what have you to leach is just because you have a copper pipe doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have copper in your water. It really depends on like what's the pH of the water that's going through those pipes. Are there other chemicals that are in the water that might either exacerbate leaching? This is really common with lead and fluoride. If you have lead in your pipes or soldering, lead soldering in your pipes, and you also have water that is fluoridated either naturally or added through your city, um, that can actually increase the amount of lead from your pipes, which is terrible. Well, how (laughs) is water fluoridated naturally? It's naturally there sometimes and not always added? Yeah, because fluorine is an element. And Mm -hmm. so as an element, it can be found naturally in the Earth's crust. And so if you have, you know, groundwater or some kind of aquifer that happens to have natural fluorine deposits, you can have naturally present fluoride in the water And some places that don't fluoridate don't do so because there's what they consider to be a sufficient amount of fluoride in the water because of natural deposits. And your water quality report will tell you that. They'll say fluoride and then it'll say natural deposits or added as a hydrofluorosicilic acid, which is usually the chemical form that's added into our municipal water supply, which is not the same thing as the fluoride in your toothpaste, which is sodium fluoride. Okay. So fluoride and chlorine are halogens. And as you said earlier, chlorine is touted as kind of one of our greatest advancements because it's helping with those waterborne illnesses that we see in third world countries. I'd like to talk about what chlorine is. Isn't it just bleach? And if we're disinfecting the water, can we make the conclusion that there's also an impact to our gut and our microbiome? The research is actually pretty thin on that, although I've read some quotes by people who do study the gut microbiome and have looked at some of the information that's out there that has stated, like I basically saying, like, I don't see why not, why drinking chlorinated water that has chlorine residues could disrupt the gut microbiome, because just like you said, its role is there to destroy and kill bacteria. It's chlorine-based pesticides have been used for decades, they're used less frequently now. In many cases, they're banned because of their persistence. And that's a slightly different conversation than chlorine in our water. 
you know, and that's only part of the problem is that it is disruptive to our gut microbiome and very likely also to the skin microbiome, right? So this is where swimmers or people who are swimming in swimming pools that have a lot of chlorine in them often end up with skin issues, eczema, or just really, really dry skin because that chlorine is wiping out the beneficial bacteria that lives on our skin. That is our skin microbiome. But that's only part of the problem. The other problem with water chlorination, or I should say water disinfection of any kind, and this includes something that's called chloramine, which is chlorine plus ammonia, which is often used as a replacement for chlorine. And I can explain why if that's if that's helpful. But all of these disinfection products create what are called disinfection byproducts where the chlorine or the chloramine reacts with organic matter that's just naturally in the water. It will always be there. The organic matter is not the problem. It is that chlorine or chloramine, these disinfection chemicals, they react with that organic matter and they produce what are called disinfection byproducts. These include a large class of chemicals called trihalomethanes and trihalomethanes are for the most part, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of them. So I don't know if all of them have been analyzed, but many of them are carcinogens. And your water quality report will tell you what the total trihalomethane count is. And we want that to be as absolutely low as possible. But what's also interesting, you know, people often get these water quality reports in the mail because that's how they're supposed to, every house is supposed to get one. And they just kind of look at it and they throw it in the recycling bin, hopefully. No one knows how um, to read it. You don't know how to read it. And so what's interesting is almost every, if not every, water quality report will actually have a little box that's a warning that says, you know, if you are a cancer patient or immunocompromised, don't drink the water. Oh, wow. Don't drink it. You shouldn't drink this water, which like, it doesn't matter how clean your water is. It's going to say that because almost every place in the country is using these disinfection chemicals and we want them to like we do want our water to be treated in such a way that we don't have these pathogenic bacteria so like there is certainly a risk benefit but this is really where i encourage people to filter at home because it's really the only way that we're going to be able to have our cake and eat it too meaning not have bacteria in the water and still have safe drinking water at home well i'd love to know how you feel about my well water and how I should test that. But you were just talking about with trihalomethanes, because I kind of want to ask you like a thousand questions every time you get done talking. (laughs) But what I have here is a public notice from a municipality. And it says, this municipality exceeds disinfection byproduct standards for drinking water. How perfect (laughs) that you can decode this because you just basically did. And it said, our water system recently violated a drinking water standard. Although it's not an emergency, as our customers, you have the right to know what happened and what you should do and what we're doing. So we routinely monitor for the presence of drinking water contaminants. And our testing results in August show that one of the four sample sites with our system exceeded the standard or maximum contaminant level for trihalomethanes. The yes. standard for trihalomethanes is 80 micrograms per liter. The testing site that violated this was 80.80 micrograms per liter. So I felt like this was kind of prudent. I wonder if they even had to publish this. They probably Uh, have to. Yes. You know, here's the thing, whether they do is another issue, right? So this is, again, you know, there's plenty of cases of whether it's corporate malfeasance of around, you know, polluting communities, drinking water, and then hiding the information and working with public officials to like not send out these public notices 
there is historical precedent for that happening, but generally like speaking, certainly that also like the DuPont contamination in West Virginia of Parkersburg, West Virginia with their PFAS chemicals, which is featured heavily. I mean, it's the whole premise of the Mark Ruffalo film, The Dark Waters, which I think is on Netflix. And then there's a great documentary, which is sort of the precursor to that theatrical release called The Devil We Know, which is all about DuPont's long history of contaminating drinking water with unregulated chemicals. They're still not regulated by the Safe Drinking Water Act, even though that pollution has been happening for decades. And there's lots of reasons why it's not it's still not yet regulated. But that's just a real life example of significant, devastating levels of water contamination that was happening for decades that nobody did anything about, including the federal government. They had to, DuPont had to get sued. And this one lawyer was took, spent 20 years going after DuPont because it's a big problem. Mm-hmm. But and it's, hard under, it's hard to get traction on yes. you know, without education, unfortunately. So it's a bit yeah. of a Okay. And, yeah. And people typically don't think about their water until they get a notice like this, mm-hmm. right? That's how a lot of the people living in West Virginia that were experiencing that PFAS contamination were alerted to this. They got a, a public notice. So it was like, hey, something's in the water. It's really bad. <laughs> don't, well, don't worry. No need to worry about it. You don't need to do anything. We're right. Fine. Well, this is the challenge because it's like, it's kind of hard to bridge between the water and all the health issues because they're so substantial. But sometimes it's like, there's got to be a connection here. So anyway, I'll finish paraphrasing a little bit of what this statement says. It says, because it, it goes along with what you said. You don't need to worry about this. You do not need to boil your drinking water or find a bottle of water supply. However, if you do have specific health concerns, some people or consult your doctor, some people who drink water containing trihalomethanes in excessive of the limits over many years may experience problems with their liver, kidneys, or central nervous system and may have an increased risk of getting cancers. These chemicals are byproducts of the chlorination process. And then apparently they were switching from a free chlorine residual to monochloramine to help minimize the formation. So let me ask you this. Does this mean when you're a chloramine, an ammonia plus a chlorine, it reduces these byproducts? So let's talk Um, about that. So yes and no. So this is a good point because I mentioned this earlier. A lot of municipalities are switching from chlorination to chloramination. So chlorine and ammonia, chloramine. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is chlorine has a smell. Like people notice it. Sometimes mm. you can go to a community and you like to turn on the faucet and you're like, ew, I have to drink this. You can smell the chlorine. Mm. Chlorine is very is volatile, mm-hmm. right? Very volatile. If you have a goldfish at home and you need to fill his tank, you are instructed to fill a container with water and let it sit for 24 hours before you put it in the fish tank so that the chlorine can off gas. Mm-hmm. and dissipate. Otherwise, you could kill your fish. That's mm-hmm. the reason why that instruction is there for fish. And this applies really to all amphibians because they're incredibly sensitive. And so one, because of the smell, which people object to the smell and the taste, but also because of this issue with trihalomethanes and, you know, trying to keep those levels under control. And so municipalities are going, okay, let me switch to chloramine. Chloramine does not create as many of those disinfection byproducts. However, the ones that it does create tend to be more toxic. The other problem is that chloramine is not nearly as volatile. So it stays in the water distribution system longer, which your water municipality looks at as a positive. 
right? So what that means is they're adding chlorine to the water at various points along the water distribution system. But if the chemical is extremely volatile, by the time it gets to your house, its efficacy of disinfection is going to be minimized. And so chloramine solves that problem because it stays in the water system longer, stays in the water longer. It also means it's harder to remove. So this is why this is just gets to the absolute point of why people always ask me, what's the best water filter to get? And I cannot answer that question for them without doing this deep dive into what's happening in your city, because the filters that filter out chlorine will typically not filter out chloramine. Right, You need a special type of carbon to reduce or remove chloramine and a regular, like your regular activated carbon and your regular Brita filter or whatever won't do the work. It won't do it. And so you have to know, does your city use chlorine or does it use chloramine? Because that will completely inform the type of water filter that you get. Okay. And I know you have a thing for this to help people with it, which I can't wait to get to as well. But so like just a dumb kind of like obvious question is you have to call your city and ask them and like what if that person doesn't like how do you validate it do you just ask for the water report does it say it or not it will tell you on the water report what is used as a disinfectant it will tell you chloramine or chloramine sometimes it's written as chlorine plus ammonia which is basically what a chloramine Mm -hmm. is it'll present it in one of those two ways but yes that's how you know you can okay. certainly call up your water board or whatever and ask and say, hey. Try to get the same answer multiple times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that's certainly not something that they're going to lie about right. on their water quality. I report. just mean sometimes they, I mean, I feel like sometimes we don't know things, right? Like accidentally. Yeah. Maybe it's an obvious thing, though, that they'll know yeah. for sure because it's kind of like yeah. the biggest thing that they should know. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just a human nature thing. It's like sometimes you just don't know everything yeah. well, about what the- you do at your job. One of the things that I want to touch on that you, when you were reading the Brookings report that you had for the violation for trihalomethanes in your community was their mention of the MCL, the maximum contaminant level. Mm-hmm. Now these are set. This is the language of the Safe Drinking Water Act and the regulations. They have maximum contaminant levels, which is abbreviated as an MCL. They also have something called an MCGL, which is the maximum contaminant goal level. Like this is what we're looking for. It's the goal. Sometimes the goal is zero, but like what's actually legal is going to be higher than that. And so what is important to understand is those maximum contaminant level numbers are not health and safety thresholds. Mm. They're not. Right. And here's why. And I understand, like, this is a tricky situation. So if the federal government said, we want there to be absolutely no level of lead, for example, zero lead in, that's the federal requirement. And if you exceed that by even the smallest amount, you are in violation and could be fined. Most communities, by the way, are not fined because the EPA does not have the staff to follow up on these violations, unfortunately. So they just... That's how everything is, though. Yes, exactly. And so the problem with that is you have, as I was mentioning earlier, like how affluent your community is. What is the budget for your community? If you have a really old, outdated infrastructure, which many communities around this country have incredibly old water treatment systems that, you know, they've passed their useful life by 20 or 30 years already. They need to be torn down and rebuilt, but people don't have the 50 million plus dollars it might take to do that. 
And so if the federal government mandates these really, really strict zero level or really low levels of contaminants, what you're going to have is all these communities who can't afford to meet the standard. Mm -hmm. They don't have the money to do it. And the federal government sets the standards, but they're certainly not helping states and cities meet the standard, Mm -hmm. right? And so what happens is we have a negotiation between epidemiologists and the health standards that they would like to see, and then what is financially feasible. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's where we have this difference. People often think, oh, the maximum contaminant level, it's a health standard. And anything below that means it's, I'm, it's quote unquote safe. And that's not accurate. So I just want to point that out. And you know what? I think sometimes we're always looking for something to blame. And I think we have this same dynamic in our own households. It's what are my standards? What am I capable and able to do? And that's what I'm going to do. And so a couple other comments. You were talking about chlorine and affecting skin microbiomes. This is a really big deal to me. I do a lot of skin stuff. I was very affected by chlorine. And I will just mention that for some people... Chlorine is useful because they've got this bacterial overgrowth, right? Or mm, short term, yeah. or like, like it's a, a very recommended thing, this bleach dunk, um, you might call it. So for yeah. some types, it'll help with the clearance. And for some of us, it'll make it worse. Now, I think that's just interesting. Now, we've talked about cancer and skin issues, but there's interactions in the thyroid as well. So before we oh, yeah. depart from halogens, I definitely want to talk about the thyroid interaction and what's going on with these yeah. halogens, so, chlorine and, so- and um, fluoride. Yeah. So these chemicals, chlorine, fluorine, bromine, and iodine all occupy the same column on the periodic table of elements called halogens. And all the halogenated chemicals are extremely reactive and they have very similar characteristics. And what happens is that chlorine, bromine, fluorine, and any chemicals that are derived from that, so chlorinated, brominated, or fluorinated chemicals, displace iodine in the thyroid. And iodine is, I'm sure that you know, and hopefully your audience knows, is sort of one of those Goldilocks elements, like we need enough, too much is bad, not enough is bad. And so what happens when we have these exposures to these halogenated chemicals is it pushes out or it blocks sort of docking, if you will, of iodine in the thyroid, which can lead to hypothyroid issues, which is a low, low thyroid hormone. And that in and of itself can be the start or the trigger or the sort of underlying cause of hundreds of downstream health issues from mood, energy, skin issues, gut issues, hair loss issues, down to things like fertility issues, increased risks of autism and Down syndrome in women that are pregnant or for their children, and uh, developmental neurological issues because iodine and maternal thyroid during pregnancy is absolutely essential for healthy, normal fetal brain development. And so this is where we have, you know, people talking about, oh, there's fluoride in the drinking water is associated with all these studies that correlate to loss of IQ. Well, that's probably why it's because it's interfering with maternal thyroid levels and it's causing low thyroid during pregnancy. Kind of a disconcerting, you're saying there's like a good body of research about that? Of IQ and fluoride? Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's uncomfortable. Yes, it's certainly uncomfortable. And I think, you know, these are not massive, significant loss of IQ points. But what we have to understand is, you know, while a single 
child might have a loss of three or four IQ points, or, you know, they lose that potential. When we're looking on a population wide level, that is massive. That's millions of children. And sort of the downstream of that is we have less productivity, less earning potential, right? Less Mm -hmm. advancement socially, economically, and in all ways when you have limited IQ. Mm -hmm. So that leads to all of these other health effects and and downstream issues. Yeah, this sucks. Okay. Um, Our water's not as good as we think it is, guys. (laughs) Yeah, I had a question about this that I lost here. It'll come back to me. But oh, I was just going to mention that from a clinical standpoint, as someone in practice, and also talking to my pharmacist bestie, shout out to you, you know who you are. Once upon a time, she had told me, I just said, what's, you know, most commonly dispensed. And at the time I was working in conventional care where I was expecting it to be like blood sugar or hypertension stuff. And she's like, nope, it's thyroid medication. Mm. So it's thyroid medication that's the most dispensed. But yet when I see people clinically, sometimes it's like things have to get horrifically bad before you even move the labs enough. And so some people really do well when you support thyroid before the labs get out of range, which is actually a functional medicine right. <laughs> you know, component anyway, is like yep. supporting things before they're a disaster because you already feel crappy. So this is just a side note. Sometimes it's like, like I have a nurse client right now where it's like her thyroid labs look normal, even on functional ranges, but the symptoms are there. And then we yeah. look at her other like adrenal and hormone stuff and it's like, nope, points back to thyroid. So let's just be supportive nutrient wise and other things. So anyway, I just mentioned that it's actually like a giant deal. I yeah. I mean, that there's reason. millions of people that are dealing with underactive thyroid that don't know it. I have heard other people that, that are pharmacists that specialize in this area say that like it's the like most underdiagnosed condition right. is low thyroid. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, there are so many chemicals. I mean, there's lots of reasons, right, why we can have low thyroid. But when we have a environment that is exposing us to dozens of chlorinated, brominated, and fluorinated chemicals in a single day, like, well, gee, it's no wonder. Yeah, it does suck. Yeah. Okay. I have more questions. So, and as a side note, also, there's such a good episode on this uh, podcast with Dr. Christine Marin about postpartum hyperthyroidism, who is a friend of yours and a colleague of mine. And she just does such a beautiful job talking about it and explaining it so well. So check that one out. We can link that in the show notes as well. Okay. So I was talking to a client the other day who's in the deep South and we think about water going downward. Is there an increase? What else is going on in the deep south water supply versus up north? I don't actually know the answer to that question other than, you know, if there are definitely, I guess it depends on where in the deep south we're talking about. If we're looking at like Gulf region, mm-hmm. we absolutely get pesticide runoff that comes down through the Mississippi, right? And that what we see in the Gulf is these zones of eutrophication, which is where like, there's just die off, there's no oxygen in the water, because all of these pesticides run into these water systems, and these algae proliferate, and the algae suffocates the surface of the water, covers the surface of the water, sucks out all the oxygen, and you get these dead zones, these eutrophied zones. Hmm. So there's certainly that is present and then I, I think would be at least somewhat attributed to that downstream effect. Well, it feels like common knowledge, although it probably deserves some, I wish I had the data here at this moment. But to my knowledge, I thought, I think that the deep south has higher cancer rates for these reasons as well, which I think 
you know, I always wondered to attribute it to water. But this would go back to like, where's the water source again? Like, is yes. It- and this is also where understanding the history of the land that we live on is important. Mm. So in southern states that used to be the seat of the cotton industry and cotton plantations, what we have is a high use of arsenic-based pesticides. Arsenic-based pesticides were really common in cotton plantations. And arsenic, because it is an element it doesn't go away. It doesn't degrade. It just sits in the soil and this stays in the soil. So once it's there, it stays there. And arsenic is extremely toxic and it's linked to a lot of different types of cancers, neurotoxicity, preterm birth, developmental effects, diabetes, heart disease. And so it can be both naturally occurring and present because of historical pesticide use. So what that means is that you have soil and groundwater that is contaminated with higher levels of arsenic. So this comes into conversation a lot when I'm talking about things like rice, because rice has a tendency to bioaccumulate. That's referred to as a hyperaccumulator of arsenic. It just has an affinity for arsenic. It pulls the arsenic out of the soil, which is great from a remediation standpoint for the soil, but bad for the rice because now the rice that you're eating has arsenic. And so this is also true in Bangladesh, where there's high levels of naturally present arsenic in the geography in Bangladesh. And so the water has high levels of arsenic. So the rice produced and grown in Bangladesh also has high levels of arsenic. And there's tremendous amount of arsenic toxicity in the Bangladeshi population. Here in the United States, when we're thinking about rice, Again, this all goes back to pesticides, metals, and certainly water factors into that because of the way that rice is grown. It's grown in water in sort of these flooded fields. And you can have organic California rice that has much lower levels of arsenic because it's grown in a different region of the world that doesn't have arsenic in the soil. So arsenic, sorry, rice grown in the southern United States has higher levels of arsenic because of this historical pesticide use. And so we do have differences in the contamination profile based on where we live. If somebody's living in a rural environment that has agriculture and farming, not only are they going to have higher levels of pesticides, but they might have higher levels of nitrates from, you know, farm runoff and those levels of pesticides are going to fluctuate during the growing seasons. This, you know, you mentioned Krista, that you have well water. Well, well water is not regulated. First of all, it's not regulated. So meaning your municipality, you're on your own. If you have well water, you are on your own. That is the trade-off. You don't have a water bill, right? Because you're not connected to city water. Part of city being on city water connected to a water system where you have to pay for your water. What you're paying for is the infrastructure and the monitoring and testing and all that stuff. When you have well water, you're outside of that system. You're off the grid. And so what that means is they're, well, that's up to you to monitor your water because you're not part of this, the city system. And what I usually recommend for people that are living in rural or agricultural areas is to, at least in the beginning, when somebody moves someplace, is don't just test your well water once. Test it in the spring when pesticide use in the area is going to be higher and maybe test it in the fall, right? Test it best case, worst case scenario. So that you understand the cyclical nature of 
what might be in your water. This is going to be a fun experiment. Yeah. Yes. But I also want to say I've looked for this. So when I, I don't know what to buy that's going to be worthwhile. In terms of filters or testing? Testing. Okay. Well, I can tell people what I recommend. So there's two companies that I recommend. The first is National Testing Laboratories. They are sort of the gold standard. You can get lots of different types of tests, well water tests, city tests. You can test for specific contaminants. The test that I really push for, aside from National Testing Laboratories, is from a newer company called TapScore. And I think they're just at mytapscore.com is their website. Now, what they do that's different, NTL, the National Testing Laboratories, is they're looking beyond the MCL and the MCLG, those federally regulated levels. And they're looking at the literature and they're looking at regulations in other countries that might be more strict. And they're saying, what is actually the health standard? And there's no standard, actually. But what is the threshold at which we would not feel comfortable having this in drinking water based on what the research is suggesting? And they're using those benchmarks as their level of relative safety or not safety. And so to me, they're going beyond the regulations. Interesting. And so I love that company. It's really simple, depending on the, it's a couple hundred bucks, depending on 200 bucks or whatever, which I recognize not everybody can afford. And especially if you're doing multiple times a year, in an ideal world, you would test your tap water, get a water filter, and then test your water filter to make sure that it's actually doing what it's supposed to be doing. But this is going to be me. I'm going to be testing mine because we have this thing that my husband bought because the water person said you should put bleach in your tank and like run it through every year because you're getting kind of this like stanky stuff that's growing Mm -hmm. in your toilet wells and whatever. I think it was, yeah, sulfurous smelling, whatever. So, and we were like, we're going to use peroxide instead of bleach. And then he found this company and did not consult me about this peroxide thing. It doesn't matter. But I was like, you know, that's fine. But if I'm doing tap water testing, I'm going to get that. And then I'm going to see if I can talk my neighbors into this without the same thing and see where we can get. And then I'll let you know how it goes because... I like data. It's good. Yeah. I mean, I think TapScore has really great testing. I'm an affiliate partner for them because I just really believe in what they're doing. I think they're great. I have one of their tests on my counter that I'm going to be doing my own water soon. But I really think that they're approaching it from a far more holistic, let's just say an integrative approach, but like a basic well water test, which isn't going to tell you a lot, but it's going to tell you like, you know, are there toxic metals? Is there nitrate or nitrites? Is there bacteria like coliform or E. coli? And then like, how hard is your water? Because that can also influence how you filter. Like if somebody has really hard water, well, you have to know that your water filter is just not going to last as long because that hardness is really hard on your system, water systems. But that's like 150 bucks. And then, you know, you can get extended well water testing. That's like over $600 if you really want to nerd out and, and or, you know, are concerned, but they have excellent testing. And then based on the results that you get, they make unaffiliated recommendations. Mm -hmm. Hey, here are the type of filters. And here's some recommendations. We're going to point you in the right direction of like, based on your contaminants, like we think you need this type of reverse osmosis system, or maybe you don't have that many contaminants and just a basic carbon filter is going to be great. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. I only have a Not that many more questions, but you just said it. So reverse osmosis system. So this is a question from a colleague. When you use an RO system and you buy a mineral replacement tube, is that 
similar to the mineral content before water going through it or less? Or maybe we just... Um, it's probably more mm-hmm. and it's probably different. And the reason for that is, well, the minerals that are naturally going to be present in your water are 100% dependent on what is the geography of where you live, right? So if you look at, or if you've ever tasted Avion bottled water, it's really has a specific taste. It's very different from water of like, you know, Dasani or Poland spring water. And that's because the mineral profile of water in Europe is higher and it's slightly different profile than what we have here. So like, I think Avion is disgusting. I can't drink it. I mean, I don't really drink bottled water anyway, but like anytime I've been to Europe, like I find the tap water to be really gross. And it's mostly because the mineral present mineral profile is different than the mineral profile in the United States. And if you look at, again, these bottled waters like Dasani, which is a Coca-Cola product, that water tastes sweet. And it's not because there's sugar added. It's because the mineral profile, they've like intentionally put in minerals that add more sweetness to the water because we have a sweet palate and they're a soft drink company and they want people to have a sweet palate. Mm-hmm. So the type of minerals in your water is totally dependent on where you live. And, mm-hmm. you know, if your water is surface water, meaning it's water that's collected in an aquifer or in a above ground reservoir, then you may not have a very robust mineral profile. If your water is in an underground aquifer, it's groundwater, then yeah, you might have more minerals, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're the right minerals or good minerals. So when you're using any kind of mineral replacement product, whether it's a tube or a, you know, drops or whatever, there's companies that sell sort of trace minerals for this purpose. They're giving you just sort of a, a robust, like, hey, here are the minerals that we think are going to be good for water and just generally good to have. Um, sometimes those mineral replacement cartridges or tubes that come with RO systems or that you can get as add-ons I think they refer to it as polishing. They're like, it's just going to polish the taste. And so what that's going to do is, again, they're going to choose minerals that make the water taste really good. So it's not necessarily the same as what was stripped out by the RO system. But in some cases, maybe that's good. Yeah. But I wouldn't worry about that too much. I mean, yes, we do want to remineralize our water. So for me, reverse osmosis systems are last resort, meaning they have downsides for a couple of downsides. And so, you know, for a long time, I just remember people were like, just, just get an RO system. RO systems are the best. And I was like, yeah, well, not if you live in California that experiences drought and RO systems tend to be really wasteful. They waste one to three to four gallons of water for every water gallon of water that you can drink as it uses high osmotic pressure to push that water through a membrane, which is the reverse osmosis membrane so that you can get your, quote unquote, clean water on the other side. But one of the other downsides is it removes the minerals from your water. And so we do want to add those back in. And we don't want to drink demineralized water because, you know, that water is always seeking equilibrium. And there is research that suggests that if we are drinking demineralized water long term, we are actually pulling minerals from our body, from our bones to compensate for the lack of minerals in the water. And minerals are a pretty big deal. Another topic, another day. Okay. Really, I think this is my last-ish question besides I want to talk about 
what you have for helping people with water filters, because that's the question, but it's not the easy answer. But my question really is, so like, we'd like to brag that, you know, you were just speaking at the Microbiome Labs conference and Rita Caldwell was there and she's talking about cholera and water and blah, 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 blah. And anyway, so parasite prevalence. Some people are say, you know, there must be more going on in the water than what meets the eye with the amounts of H. pylori we see, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So do you have any comments, thoughts? Do you see any research about where we really actually do have stuff in our water sometimes? I mean, we absolutely can get stuff in our water, meaning, you know, whether it's uh, coliform or E. coli or giardia, I mean, that's more common if you're out hiking in the woods, mm-hmm. cryptosporidium, like these are bacteria that can be present in your water. I think these tend to be more present. I don't want to say rural regions, but non-urban areas. That's not to say that people can't get, you know, crypto or giardia or any of these other parasites in an urban area, but they tend to be more where your water is coming from a natural water source, especially a surface water. Yeah. I've known people where this has happened to them. They have kind of an older well and they have a feedlot nearby with their cattle or whatever livestock that they have is, you know, there's some kind of pen close-ish by where they started to get sick from their water yeah, and get some cleanup. I don't, I don't know what the statistics are in terms of drinking water. I certainly know that, you know, people that are swimming, for example, in freshwater lakes, you know, they're going on vacation, they're going to a local watering hole, they're going hiking or camping. That certainly can be a vector, if you will, for exposure. You know, I think it's, I don't know the prevalence in the drinking water here in the U.S. of those parasites and how common they are. I do know that they are there. And this, you know, we'll often see public notices about contamination. These public notices will come for, this is a little bit of a different topic, but for people that are fishermen, right? People that fish subsistence or otherwise, where they're fishing and eating and consuming fish that are in contaminated water. The bacteria tends to be less of a problem there because you're cooking the fish Mm -hmm. um, and that will kill the bacteria. But for other contaminants, arsenic, heavy metals, uh, PCBs, these highly persistent chemicals, you know, oftentimes we'll see uh, communities have public notices about don't eat the fish here. Yeah, I have one of those. Yeah. <laughs> nearby lake you, where I go paddleboarding. You, you have it all. Yeah, <laughs> we got, yeah, we got everything everywhere. So no, it's so interesting to learn about because you just never know like how big of a concern is it? Like I'm not fishing there. I'm just paddleboarding there. So I'm not yeah. really worried about eating those fish, but yeah. I don't know. Lots to it. So, you know, the big question is what filter should people get, which isn't straightforward because you need to know how their water is being filtered and, or, you know, from my perspective with a well, do I need something else or not depending on what the testing is, but you have some guidance around this. And I don't remember if it's a masterclass or a full on thing. So why don't you it's tell a, us about mini course? I'll call cool. it a mini course. It's like a good, I like hour. that. I like yeah. that style. Thanks. It's a, it's a three hour training. It's got 10 lessons. It's called pure and it's with the intent of like pure water. So it is really about providing people with the education that they need to navigate this. You know, like you just said, and like beat this drum all of the time is, you know, I get asked, what is the best water filter to buy? And it's like, well, I can't answer that question without knowing all of this other information about, you know, what's happening with your water. And then to the point about like thyroid issues, like 
that's also helpful information so that I can say, look, whatever I get, it has to absolutely be like gangbusters at getting rid of chloramine Mm -hmm. or fluoride or whatever, because that's a primary health concern. And so there's all these different variables. And what I want people to be able to do is navigate the shopping of a filter or shopping for a filter as an informed consumer so that they Mm -hmm. know what to ask. They know how not to be swayed by marketing. One of two things happen. They either go to like a Lowe's or a Home Depot or a Target or whatever, and they just look for something that they think looks nice, right? If it's an over-counter pitcher filter, if it's an under-sink, nobody cares what it looks like. They look for price. And then they look at this, they get dazzled by like this long list of like, here's all the chemicals that we can take out. And they put like the full long chemical names. So people are like, I don't know what that is, but wow, mm-hmm. right? They get dazzled by that marketing. But if that filter doesn't take out the one chemical that you really need to get out of your water, like atrazine or arsenic or fluoride, it's a waste of money, right? Mm-hmm. You're just leaving the door open for this contaminant that's just not going to be addressed appropriately. Or what happens is you get some, whether it's a friend or some social media influencer that's promoting some filter and saying, this is the filter that I use and this is the best one. I think that's also where people kind of get led astray because they're being sold a filter that, again, works for one person, but doesn't work for everyone. It's the same concept to me as, you know, there's not one diet for everyone. There's not one fitness protocol that's right for everyone. Just because some filter is great for some influencer doesn't mean it's the right filter for you. A, first and foremost, really do a deep dive in education. A lot of what we talked about today is addressed in there and all of those considerations that we have to think about. Is it groundwater? Is it surface water? Is it agricultural? Is it urban? And then what types of filters remove which types of contamination? And then what are the considerations, right? Is alkaline water all that it's made out to be? Short answer, no. Don't drink it. Short answer. And what do I do about my shower? How do I filter my shower water? What do I do about if I want a whole house system? So there's all of these different variables. And you know, I had to create this course because my students for years just kept asking me what kind of water filter. And I was like, I don't know. But let me explain why. I don't know. And I'm going to give you the tools so that you can figure that out. Mm -hmm. So do you give us resources on like, Lots of recommendations for filters as well. And yeah. like lower priced and higher priced ones, because that's where it gets tricky because it's like, well, you know, there's this premium one, but also yeah. you could do this. That is, yes, I have inside the course some sort of pros and cons. I have some filter recommendations. It's the whole point of the course is not just to point you to a recommendation. I don't need a course to do that. The course is really intended to educate and empower people to understand, you know, what is happening. And of course, practitioners who want to understand, hey, what are the health risks of chlorine versus chlorine, chloramine versus arsenic versus atrazine, whatever. But yes, I do have recommendations in there. And and I'm really sensitive to not just recommending something that's quote unquote, the best that happens to be like a $500 filter, because I know that that's just not accessible to a lot of people. I also used to live in New York City, where I had 24 square inches of kitchen countertop space in my tiny, tiny kitchen. So Getting some big countertop system or a Berkey filter, which is a great filter, but it's not great for everything. And it would not have been a good filter for me in that situation because I don't have counter space to be putting that. 
filter would have to go live in the bathroom or in my bedroom because I had this tiny apartment. And so I'm conscious of and sensitive to those types of considerations, which is why I never want to answer the question, what type of filter should I get? Because like, I don't know, I have this requires us to have a whole long conversation about what your lifestyle is and what are you looking for and what's your budget and what are your big health concerns. So yeah, there are recommendations in there for brands of filters and filters that I like. And those recommendations clearly state, this is what that filter is really good at taking out. And here are some considerations. Okay. Got it. Do you want to tell us the link to where people can find you? It's just lauraadler.com forward slash pure, P-U-R-E. And it's L-A-R-A-A-D-L-E-R.com forward slash pure. Thanks so much for coming on today. I have been wanting to talk about this topic for a while and I feel like we covered tons of stuff and I'm super happy about it. Yeah, good. I love slash hate this topic. I mean, I love it because it's interesting. I hate it because it's frustrating and I wish there was an easy answer. Like, you know, if there was a a single water filter that I affiliated for and promoted, I'd probably make more money off of affiliate sales than I would off of a water course. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, $97 or whatever that's not how I roll. And I just want to make sure that people understand the complexity of the situation before they just go run out and get a filter. And I definitely want health professionals to understand the complexity of this so that they can also, as part of their service to their clients or patients, or have somebody on their team do this, do a little bit of that legwork. So to say, can say, hey, look, I looked at your water quality report, and here's what I'm finding. And based on this, I'm going to recommend a filter for you. Mm -hmm. That's a huge time saver for the patient or client or patient, right? Yeah. So let me have you leave people with this. If you could tell them one thing to leave them with, what would you say? In terms of water filtration, I would say anything is better than nothing. I love it. Anything is better than nothing, right? If you're listening to this and you're like, oh my God, I just can't afford a big system and anything is better than nothing. And the, the more inexpensive your filter is, like if you're using some pitcher filter, just change the filter more frequently. They get gummed up pretty quickly. And we have to remember to change the filters, but anything is better than nothing. Love it. Thanks so much, Laura. Yeah, you're welcome. Water affects the gut microbiota, thyroid health, and these things can also impact fertility. Ensuring you have a high quality prenatal on board to carry you through some of the tough stuff our bodies have to deal with day to day while trying to grow a small human helps. As you probably know, the supplement industry is absolutely unregulated and picking a good product boils down to really understanding the integrity behind the company, creator, and their commitment to quality and purity. Unlike the majority of prenatal supplements, Full Circle Prenatal is manufactured in a facility that is good manufacturing practice certified by the FDA, and each batch undergoes rigorous ingredient testing, including independent third-party testing to ensure it exceeds even the strictest standards for heavy metals, allergens, and other contaminants. As a long-time private practice functional medicine registered dietitian and mother, Full Circle Prenatal creator Ayla Barmer has a deep knowledge on the needs and challenges of women before, during, and after pregnancy. You can feel confident in the years she spent curating the best forms of nutrients for Full Circle in dosages that actually align with the research. For a deep dive on how you can make a perfect prenatal, check out episode 96 of The Less Stressed Life, Makings of the Perfect Prenatal with Ela Barmer, MSRD. And if you're ready to support yourself with the best prenatal on the market, head over to fullcircleprenatal.com to learn more and use the code LESSSTRESS to get a discount on your order.
One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 